Against Everyone with Connor Abib is funded exclusively by patrons on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib. If this show inspires in you new thinking, sends you off to do new reading, uh, encourages you to have exciting or thoughtful conversations with friends, um, then please do consider giving back to the show. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. And if you are a patron already, thank you very much. Uh, I really love that this show uh, works through a kind of associative economic move. That is, I'm not at the top of the show telling you to go buy products uh, by my sponsors that you don't care about, that I don't care about, that probably have shitty uh, manufacturing um, processes and abusive labor, exploitative, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> instead, it's just you like the show. It has some meaning in your life. Um, and what I'm doing is uh, important to you, or at least uh, exciting or provocative to you in a certain way. So you give back. So please do go do that now. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib. Okay, I'm going to give you a second to do it just to pause the show and go there. Okay, thank you so much for contributing. <laughs> uh, also, you can subscribe on any platform and give it a five-star rating on iTunes. That makes a difference in the visibility of the show. Okay. Uh, this episode is going to be a repost of Against Everyone with Connor and Beeb 22, Destroy Nature Before It Destroys Us. There's a lot of reasons why um, I'm reposting this. I'm actually going to repost a few of these older episodes where it's just me giving a lecture. But the main reason why is that I'm currently in the really early stages of developing uh, a series of classes and lectures uh, for online and in public, as well as a book called Occult Philosophy Now. Don't get on my case if these things don't happen right away. It's going to take a little bit of time, but a lot of it is incorporating uh, some of the stuff that's in these old episodes, these solo episodes where I would just basically give a kind of lecture about something, usually a topical political point, bringing some of the uh, occult perspectives to it in a political, uh, theoretical way. So um, this episode, I think, is particularly uh, topical because climate change and the climate change crisis, or the so-called climate change crisis, don't worry, I'm not a denier. Um, when I say so-called, you'll see what I mean, I think, when you listen to this episode. Um, I think that that's looming larger and larger in people's imaginations, uh, and some of that anxiety has to do with the political situation, um, being stuck between neoliberals and fascists um, in governments all over the world who are talking about how to deal with climate change or whether or not they should just sort of discard the idea. Um, altogether and just full speed ahead, make as much money as possible. I think that uh, most of the narratives we have in response to climate change and also in response to what governments are doing or not doing about climate change is fundamentally flawed. And that includes some of the better ones, like, you know, Greta sailing around the world um, and telling people about <laughs> climate change from a certain perspective. I think that she's great. 
I think that anybody doing activism that young uh, with that much uh, veracity is a pretty amazing person, um, much less any age, really. But I also think that we're going to keep banging our heads against the wall, uh, and even if we do sort of solve some of the problems, we're going to re-evoke and re-encounter a lot of the problems that are embedded in the narratives that we use to talk about environmentalism. And why? Because our concept of what nature is and what the planet is are fatally flawed and destined to bring us uh, to more destruction. So that's what this episode is about. That's why it's called Destroying Nature Before It Destroys Us. Destroy our concept of nature. To do this, I bring in uh, thinkers as disparate as Freud, Paracelsus, and uh, the author Patricia Highsmith. I think... um, I don't expect people to jump on board and adopt my narrative and say this is uh, this is amazing and it's going to change the world and we're going to bring this to the next G7 lizard people summit. Um, <laughs> but I do think that uh, it can cause us to think more, can help us contend with the anxiety, help us breathe differently and respond in our everyday lives a little differently if we think about it. I actually don't agree with everything I've said in this episode anymore. It's uh, over a year since I recorded it and I've since rethought some of it. Um, but I do think that it can give uh, an interesting intervention. So with all that said, that's the intro. That's why I'm re-upping uh, this episode and we'll be re-upping some of the older lecture episodes soon. They're also germane to some of the guests that I'm going to be having on soon and some of the discussions with them so you can hear uh, some of the context of the things I say when I'm in discussion with the guests uh, that are coming up. So I hope you like this episode and Oh, one more thing I want to say. Um, you know, this is also coming up for me because a little while ago I tweeted a tweet that sort of pissed some people off, which uh, was about, and, and also a lot of people liked, which was something like, uh, you know, I, what if, what if our role right now is to tend to the death of the earth, not to try to save it, um, but rather to be sort of caretakers or hospice workers uh, for its death. So um, I was just sort of thinking of that. It's a concept that was developed by multiple occultists over time, uh, especially some politically minded ones. And just thinking about not, you know, how do we save the planet, nor how do we have a party since everything's fucked, but rather how do we, how would we lovingly respond to an apocalypse? And what might that give us if we started thinking in that way? Now, that kind of stuff is not exactly in the episode, but what I saw when I tweeted it was, well, first of all, a lot of people were like, thanks, I'm going to think about this. But then I saw a lot of people responding uh, in a really knee-jerk way and parroting really sort of pat and I think bad, damaging, destructive, and ultimately in some ways kind of stupid uh, environmental narratives that really don't give us anything and actually lead us to harming ourselves and each other as well as this world of trees and animals and water and air and all that kind of stuff that we 
think that we're saving by holding these narratives. So these were things like, how the fuck could you say that? Um, you you just don't care about the environment to, uh, you know, well, the earth is going to be fine. It's humans that are going to die, uh, but the earth will be just okay. Um, to that's so nihilistic, all that sort of stuff. And I don't think... I mean, it doesn't really bother me what at this point what people say about me on Twitter, um, but <laughs> I do think that uh, when I saw all those responses, I realized how reflexive our environmental thinking is and how little room we're giving ourselves uh, to think because what we generally see are, you know, just kind of neoliberal and fascist government uh, corp and corporate uh, scum <laughs> dictating what kinds of narratives we should have. And I talk about those narratives in this episode. And, um, you know, we are responding to their exploitative moves, but we might not be responding to the actual uh, environmental narratives themselves. In other words, we see what they're doing, we resist them, but we forget that maybe we need to reinvestigate what we're resisting them with um, and what ideas we're resisting them with. So this is a pretty long introduction, what, like 10 minutes almost? No big deal. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the introduction and listening to the episode again. I hope uh, it gives you a lot of food for thought. Um, listening to it again over a year uh, later, I certainly have some new thoughts. And uh, as the Occult Philosophy Now project develops, uh, I'll be sharing them with you all. All right, uh, here's Destroy Nature Before It Destroys Us. everybody, it's episode 22 of Against Everyone with Connor Beeb. Destroy nature before it destroys us. My cheery title comes from the fact that obviously we are all talking about environmentalism uh, these days. We're talking about climate change, about the end of the world. I'm not going to get into climate change denialism or alternate theories of what's going on with Earth systems. Don't worry. I'm not going to go there uh, in this episode, but I do want to talk about something that I do think is flawed about our environmental narratives. It's a conceptual flaw, and I think if we look at it um, and improve it, it can help us better approach our views of environmentalism and what to do about the environment at all. And that's the concept of nature. For me, this concept, nature, is a huge problem. Um, and since that concept of nature is a huge problem, that means by extension, the concept of the environment, of the planet, of environmental catastrophe, all that kind of stuff is all going to be very difficult to sort of clear up and approach um, in a real way without uh, figuring out what's wrong with that concept of nature. So that also includes, you know, the ideas of preserving nature or being a steward for mother nature or whatever that is. But why is that a problem for me? Why, Connor? Why? Why can't you just let us have a fucking word like nature and just be okay with it? Well, <laughs> because nature is one of our most poorly defined concepts. I might ask you or anyone, what is nature anyway? You know, and, uh, 
a lot of times you get sort of a funny answer. You know, it's kind of like if I ask someone what porn is, they might not be able to define their terms. They'd be like, well, nature is like, you know, like trees, uh, like dolphins and shit, uh, the sky, bugs under rocks. It's, it's this idea that nature is somehow things that don't have a human origin. There's generally something pastoral about it. You know, the idea is the stuff that's not human made. That's not us. You know, nature. Nature and shit. Yeah, nature. Go outside. See nature. You know. What that means is nature, the concept, provides us with a sense of distance. There's a distance between us and something else. Um, it's a conceptual distance. So there's humans and there's human acts and human creation. And those aren't nature, at least not in the same way that the rest of nature is nature. Um, and that is embedded in all our environmental narratives we have now. So let me just sort of go through some of these environmental narratives. We have the environmental narrative of going green or sustainability, um, the environmental narrative of neo-primitivism, which you might not know, but I'll get into it, and the environmental narrative of deep ecology. These are you know, three of some, there are obviously other environmental narratives, but these are the ones I want to bring up today. I think they're the three sort of main ones that people think about. So first there's going green and sustainability. And that relies on that concept of nature in so much as, hey, we're out of touch with nature's rhythms and ways, her gentle ways, and we need to get back in touch with them. We need to recycle. We need to use solar and wind power and biomimicry. And so instead of disrupting nature, we need to flow with nature. The fact that we're out of touch with the patterns, that we're out of sync with the patterns, means that we're distant from them. So we're somehow, as human beings, extracted. We've extracted ourselves from nature and are therefore disrupting it. We're acting on it. Neoprimitivism is that sort of tear down the cell phone towers and you know, learn to grow your own broccoli while everything collapses. It's sort of working with the environmental collapse and hoping for the end of civilization. Well, again, it's the same thing. We, we're separate from nature. We've disrupted it. You know, we've really screwed it up. So we've got to work with nature's power to collapse. The last one, deep ecology, is the one that we're most used to, although I don't think people call it deep ecology um, that much anymore. A lot of times it intersects with the other two narratives of sustainability or neoprimitivism. The idea is that nature, the natural world, has value in and of itself, and that human beings are just a part of nature. So it, they've noticed this gap, this weird separation, while humans are a part of nature. Um, and they say, you know, human beings are not some special category. They're just natural. You know, it's a, it, it, th this idea came to combat the idea of dominating nature, you know, in the Bible that we, you know, can control everything, that it's all for us, right? Um, and so it's like the human being as a singular species is a false concept, we're part of nature. I'm part of nature. You're part of nature. It's all nature. I mean, after all, we come from a long line of ape-like creatures. And so our buildings are like termite mounds or McDonald's is like a watering hole with McNuggets or something. But anyway, um, <laughs> I think that we sense, even though it tries to sort of close this gap by saying that, that it's kind of just sort of cute and false. What do I mean? Well, 
I mean, we don't really feel inside like our, our art is like a, a bowerbird's nest intricately woven together. We might think that that is a really fucking cool, delicate, crazy, complex thing, but we don't necessarily think of it in the same way as like, you know, all seasons of The Sopranos or whatever it is. We think that there's some distance between these two things. Um you know, so what I'm calling attention to here is that deep ecology idea of trying to weld these two things together. Well, yes, humans aren't separate from nature. Humans are part of nature is, uh, sounds good intellectually in some ways and might help us move forward, um, with environmentalist actions, but we still have an idea that perhaps there's something wrong with it because it doesn't really match up our, ex- with our experience. That narrative just doesn't indicate how utterly different our experience of being is when we look at animals or plants or the forest and we consider our own lives. We can point to some similarities and overlap, but the truth is the human being as a whole is different. The whole human being is different than what we refer to as nature. And it definitely does not get to the real problem of the statement (laughs) Human beings are the ones declaring the non-separation from the rest of the world. We're the ones making the grand declaration that we're just like everything else, but we're the ones saying it. So, uh, yeah, we're just like everyone else, but we're the only ones that can say it and will say it. So what does that mean that we've bestowed upon ourselves that power? That separation is still there, and it has to be. It's tacit in the concept of environmentalism um, and of climate change and whatever. It's, it, it's this idea that we have fucked up, right? We've knocked everything off course. And only we, through our complex and amazing governments and heroic corporations and recycling and buying seventh generation paper towels and uh, Kashi peace flakes or whatever the fuck, we can stop it. But if we're part of nature, then climate change is simply a natural process. Then environmental collapse is simply a natural process, no different than any other natural processes because we're natural agents just making things happen. The processes would be value-free. I mean, some people do actually say this, but they're not, you know, uh, by and large, the loudest voices. So you see that separation remains. We're actors acting on nature. And that's why a lot of these narratives have such a failure at creating large-scale environmental consciousness that leads to change. I'm not saying that nothing good has ever come of environmentalism. Of course it has. But I think they've been failures in a lot of other ways, and they continue to produce a sort of anxiety in us. So I'm going to propose something, which is instead of eliminating the human being – and saying the human being is just part of nature, not a special category, we could instead see what nature really is. Nature is not a thing. It's a human feeling. Nature is a human feeling. Nature is the word we use for the feeling of separation we have from other aspects of the world. It's a concept we've created. Nature is a feeling a word we use for the feeling we have of separation with other aspects of the world. It's a lens through which we can view the world utilizing a certain feeling, and that feeling is separation or disconnection. We can never feel fully connected to nature because its existence depends on separation. 
In fact, nature is derived from a word meaning birth or born, even at its root. So even just in that word itself, it denotes it's somehow created by a parent or a progenitor. That's us. We're the ones that created nature. That feeling of nature, it's a feeling of longing that can never be fulfilled or at least can only appear to be fulfilled temporarily. Because if you could fulfill a longing, you couldn't experience the longing anymore. If you get what you want, you can't want it anymore, right? And the entire point of creating a longing, creating this feeling of separation and longing is so you can feel the longing. Think of the feeling you get when you encounter something in the natural world. So this intensity of feeling that can't really be resolved or alleviated. You see the Grand Canyon. This is an example that um, the writer Colin Wilson brings up, actually, in writing about the occult. He, he says, you know, you go to the Grand Canyon and you get this overwhelming feeling, and what are you going to do? Jump into it? You can't do anything about that feeling. <laughs> um, and I would just say, you know, you get this overwhelming feeling when you encounter na- quote-unquote natural beauty, then there's nowhere really for that feeling to go. This um, is a feeling called uh, jouissance, which I'm pronouncing probably wrong, that psychoanalysts talk about. It's an overwhelm that appears to be desire and frustration all at once. It can turn love into murder, uh, the desire to embrace, the desire to squeeze to death. If you've ever read a Patricia Highsmith novel like Strangers on a Train or Talented Mr. Ripley, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Her novels are all about jouissance. It's like, Two people so in love with each other that they want to murder each other, right? Or maybe you've just been in a relationship uh, like that. I hope not, but maybe. (laughs) So we've created this concept, nature, that brings an intense, overwhelming feeling of longing. I could talk about the origins of this concept, but there's plenty out there um, about the so-called invention of nature and the natural world. I'm more interested here in what the consequences of that concept are and what to do with the concept and how to reroute it. So let's examine more this sense of separation, this nature, so we can understand its consequences and its tensions. To do that, I want to talk about a psychoanalytic concept called the death drive a bit. People think, if they've ever heard of the death drive, when they hear of Freud, um, they might think the death drive is about wanting death, like some people want to have sex. But that's not it, or at least that's not it anymore. (laughs) Psychoanalysis has gone through a lot of reiterations. The death drive is a drive to preserve a state of longing. So when Freud came up with the death drive, his theory of the death drive, he's witnessing his grandson with a reel, like a little wheel kind of thing attached to a string, and he would throw it, and then he would retrieve it. Okay, it's gone. Now it's here again. So he would throw it and pull it back. It's gone, and then you pull it back. It's here again. And Freud realized that the casting of the way away of the reel was the desired state, the longing to pull it back. His grandson was throwing it away because he wanted it to be gone. He realized that there was an enjoyment of separation, an enjoyment of ridding yourself of something. And that enjoyment was in some sense incomplete if you only just had something. You had to want to have. That's why he enjoyed continuously throwing it and bringing it back. If you just wanted to hold it, you would just hold it. So that is the death drive. You don't want to achieve... Um, you, you want to want to achieve. <laughs> this, I believe, describes nature quite well. 
Nature is a thing that cannot be us, but which we hope to achieve, which we hope to have, but we can't. It's a constant longing for connection. But once that connection is achieved, we're, we're screwed up by it. If, say, we create a park, you know, and we go to the park and feed the squirrels and whatever, we, we long for real wilderness. It's not what we're really looking for. I mean, who doesn't long for a walk in the woods? But we can't have the same leisurely experience of walking in the woods if we live in the woods. I lived in the woods. It becomes a different experience. It, it Sure, it can feel like nature, but you want to go deeper into the woods to get lost. <laughs> Nature's an aspect of the world that we have artificially banished so we can reclaim it. It's like that reel and the string. We've thrown it away because we want to reclaim it. We banish and destroy our primary experience of the world. I'll get to what this experience is a little later. We banish it and we replace it with a concept of distance and longing. We romanticize nature. We say we'll save the planet. Right? So I'm going to cast this away and I will save it. I will bring it back. We even make objects of nature all around us. We turn trees into tables and chairs and houses. So we're haunted by the presence of what we lack, of what we don't have. In some way, the concept of nature is the exhibition of the death drive. It's the externalized exhibition of the death drive or the projection of the death drive onto the world. I know that's a lot, but... Just keep rolling with me, like that reel. <laughs> there are all sorts of consequences to having this concept of nature. So first, it's why all environmental narratives depend on imagining collapse, either of nature or just the collapse of mass death, because one can't focus on nature without feeling a feeling of total longing, of unfulfillment, of loss. We should ask ourselves what it means when people are thinking about the destruction of every person alive when we think about nature. I mean, that's pretty profound that those two things are bound together in our heads. And I'm not saying every person alive might not die. I'm just saying it's a concept we need to investigate. Second, the only way to be connected to nature is to destroy it or to destroy ourselves. Again, think of the Patricia Highsmith novel. The only resolution is destruction of the other or the self or both. This is why we're destroying, quote unquote, destroying the planet or creating narratives that we're destroying the planet because we want to be in touch with something that's untouchable. We want to feel the presence of total desperation in the face of separateness. Let me explain that a little bit more because that's a little mouthy. <laughs> have you ever gotten into a relationship with a lover? You, you might have done this with a lover, right? You've gotten in a fight with your lover so you could feel the intensity of the emotion you share. What could be more infuriating than trying to fight with someone and having them just sort of shrug you off? Well, I'm just not going to get involved, right? It makes you want to scream. Sometimes we fight with people we love so we can feel the intensity of the feeling that we've lost. Things have been kind of flatlined. We get in a fight. We feel that intensity. We want our partner and ourselves to exhibit an intensity of feeling, but we elicit it by exemplifying and emphasizing the feeling of separation between us. What if... Instead of viewing nature as something that was separate, instead of doing the parlor trick of saying that the human being doesn't exist in any special way and nature has intrinsic value, we adopted instead an environmental narrative that destroyed nature, that destroyed the concept of nature, 
and instead emphasize the human being. So let's get rid of nature as a special category. So in other words, let's understand nature as a category that we created. Then everything starts to get blurry and we begin to assess anew. The lines between pollution and clean air, the lines between forests and cities, the lines between the living and the dead, they all become related to our desires and our concepts and our ideas. That makes a big difference in how we decide to approach and actually makes us a lot more responsible for our actions. Let's go a little further here just to give a hint of where I'm coming from. Let's, let's call on the occult to understand this for a bit. Here's a quote from Paracelsus, who's a 16th century physician. Um, he basically founded modern medicine, but he also activated some magic in modern medicine. Okay, here's his quote. Everything we eat and drink contains our flesh and blood, but we do not see it. They are human flesh in mysterio. All external things are nothing other than the body of the human being. Bread is blood, but who sees it? What does Paracelsus mean by this sort of perplexing quote? Well, he means a lot of things, because Paracelsus was really brilliant, but (laughs) here's part of what he means. The world is always an extension of us. The world is an extension of us, and that, instead of seeing nature as a concept of separation, we see it as an extension of what we think, feel, and want. So let's start with us. Instead of jumping out there and trying to make it all make sense as if we're not related to it or related to it because we're not real, just pay attention to yourself right now. Do an experiment. This is how you experience everything. You see, just look around you. It's all being apprehended by you and your thoughts. The sounds that are going into your ears, you're hearing that. The world is apprehended through consciousness states, not through objects. That includes the concepts that are issued, that nature is not a part of us. We can construct that concept, of course, but it's still a concept that came from your consciousness. It's a recursive extension, a reel attached to a string. We can pretend to separate it out if we want. We can disguise that it is attached and controlled by us. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to create a narrative of separation and longing, it should be for a good reason and it should yield good consequences. So instead of thinking the world is out there and that's nature and there's us, what if we considered that out there world Who sees it, as Paracelsus said, we see it as part of us. This concept is a sort of refined solipsism, or it's what I call a radical phenomenology. Um, It's really foundational to my philosophies and the philosophies of occultists and phenomenologists and radical anthropologists. I'm going to develop it in future issues, and I issues. I'm going to develop it in future episodes. And I uh, taught a course called What is the Occult that was based on this. I want to go deeper into what Paracelsus meant, but we're going to do that in future episodes. For now, let's just understand what he meant. Nature is a concept humans invented to inspire a human experience of longing. Now what? We can start thinking about nature. Instead of guilt and separation and more, we can start thinking about what it is that we want and we don't want. We can start thinking why we view certain parts of nature in a different way. I'm totally stealing this right now from 
one of my favorite writers, the psychoanalyst and author Adam Phillips. He says it best, and it's a quote that I live by, which he says, instead of talking about the natural and the unnatural, or even nature and culture, we can talk about the parts of nature we prefer and why we prefer them. So then what happens when we get our ducks, our conceptual ducks in a row, so to speak, when we start to understand that the so-called natural world is what we make of it? Okay, one more quote here. Lots of quotes in this episode. This one's by Slavoj Žižek, who you love or hate, but I like him, even though I often don't like his conclusions. He really provokes me in good ways. He says, stop looking for lost balance. After all, we decide what constitutes balance, since we have a belief in the poles. Instead, shift what is possible. So if we shift it, if we start bringing nature into us, we will shift this environmentalism stuff, and we won't keep trying to restore balance to nature based on our separation of it. We can understand that that balance is impossible. We'll keep shifting that goalpost just away from us, but the distance will remain the same. What we need is a new assessment of nature based on what we really experience. First, to identify properly what the problems are in the world, and second, to see what we really want. To put ourselves in the center of our concerns about trees and oceans and air instead of erasing ourselves so we can honestly assess how to approach these concerns and all the while remembering that we can move the center whenever we want because we are it. We can want and desire and think different things because it's all our thoughts. All right, I know this was a big, confusing episode, but thank you for <laughs> going through it with me. I mean, it, it. I think as I speak, I recognize the difference between what I'm saying and what is constantly expressed in the world about what nature is and therefore what the environment is and what we need to do to save it. I'm saying we should take action to improve uh, our world. We should. But that best action will come when we see nature for what it is and we destroy it. All right. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 